All right, let's pray. And then we'll open up our Bibles together. Father, we thank you that Jesus was worthy to take the scroll and break the seal and fulfill your plan. And he died willingly to set us free. And we thank you that in his death and resurrection, we find all of our sins forgiven. And we find life and hope and joy and peace with you. Bless the reading of your word, we pray right now. And may we all go away encouraged at the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you need a Bible, there's some down the middle aisle. You can just ask uh, the end people on the rows will now be looking if anybody needs a, a Bible. So please uh, get hold of a Bible and open up to Luke 24. Unfortunately, I don't know what page it is in those Bibles, but I'm sure you can find it. Luke chapter 24. This is going. While you're turning there, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Everybody loves stories, right? Everybody, kids, you all like stories? Everybody loves stories, whether it's reading your, your favorite novel by the beach or on the beach or by the pool on holiday, or whether it's watching your favorite book, the page turner that you love, being turned into a kind of cinematic uh, epic, or whether it's just reading stories at bedtime with your children. Everybody loves a story. And stories, if you read enough stories, what you'll generally find is that they, they follow the same basic outline. Almost, almost entirely every story follows the same basic outline. You're usually introduced to the main character uh, and the scene is set as you find out the life situation that they're in. So for example, if we, if we took Cinderella, you, in the story of Cinderella, you meet Cinderella and you meet her dad, Baron Hardup, and you find out about where they're living and what's happening and Cinderella's mom has passed away. And then you discover the main character has a problem in their life. And in Cinderella's case... She's, her father has been remarried to a nasty piece of work and she's got two ugly sisters who now live with her and they treat her so unkindly. And then we discover that there's usually a potential solution to the main character's problem. And there's the hint of happiness. So in Cinderella's case... Cinderella uh, has a fairy godmother who takes her to the ball and she meets Prince Charming. But then, just as you think that it's going to be happily ever after, there's a twist in the tale and a crisis strikes that makes you question everything that you've read beforehand. That happens in the story of Cinderella, doesn't it? The, the clock strikes midnight and the, the carriage turns back to a pumpkin and the horses turn back to white mice. And it's only at the end of the story that you find a resolution, the ultimate resolution to the crisis that brings a happily ever after for the main character. Prince Charming arrives with the glass slipper that Cinderella left behind and it fits only her foot and they get married and they live happily ever after. Now imagine how messed up we would be if we never actually took our kids to the last page of the story and we left them with that tragic moment of Cinderella, unhappy, unmarried, living in her father's house, being bossed around by her ugly stepsisters and her ugly stepmother, clinging only to the, the memory of one special night at the ball. 
There's something that is not quite right within all of us because we want happy endings to stories, even if we don't expect them in real life. The most satisfying stories are those that finish with a note of hope and happiness. And the Bible, whilst not being a fairy tale, has all of those elements in the storyline of Scripture. They have the, the hallmarks of, a, of main characters, men and women like you and me, who have a big problem that we've rebelled against God and we are going to be punished for our sins. And then there's this promising solution that God decides to send Jesus into earth to fix our problem. But then a crisis strikes that causes us to question everything that we've read. Because Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem and his lifeless body is laid in a tomb. But the great thing is that the story doesn't finish there. We're going to read in a moment from Luke, which is a biography of Jesus' life. And we're going to meet his friends who hadn't reached the last page of the story just yet. They thought it was over because Jesus had died. Now Jesus was their friend, but he was more than a wise teacher and a good friend to them. They called him Lord because they thought he was God's appointed and anointed saviour to rescue them from the Romans. But all of those hopes that they had that they were going to be free had been crushed because Jesus was dead in a tomb. So they hadn't just lost their friend. Losing a friend or a loved one is, is painful. But they'd also lost all of their hopes and dreams for the future. And he was laying in a tomb and they were waiting, waiting for a proper funeral, waiting to pay their respects to the dead body of Jesus and send him off to what lies beyond the grave. So let's read verse 20, uh, chapter 24 from verses 1 to 12, because only as we come alongside the women in the tomb who were mourning the death of their friend, can we appreciate what fully happens next? And this is what Luke records. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women, went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared because they were going to prepare his body for burial. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all of the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe it. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home 
marveling at what had happened. Three words this morning from this passage that will help us to remember the Easter story and the good news of the resurrection. Three words all beginning with P. The women were perplexed, but they shouldn't have been because it was all predicted. And the story is very personal. So we're going to just look at those three words together. Perplexed, predicted, and personal. Let's begin with the first word, perplexed. It's right there in verse You see that word, perplexed. On the early Sunday morning, before the sun was really up, lots of women went to the tomb of Jesus where he was laid, as I said, to prepare his body for burial. But they found three things that they weren't expecting. They found the heavy stone had been moved away, and that would have been shocking enough because it would have taken two or three people to have moved a stone of such heaviness, of such weight, That was the usual kind of way that they sealed tombs in the ancient Near East. And then when they went into the tomb, they discovered that there was no body in the tomb. That Jesus wasn't there. Now, I can imagine that their minds would have been racing. Was someone else already here? Is this a sick joke? Is there grave vandals that have stolen his body? Perhaps the Romans have come and taken it. Or the Jewish religious leaders have come and taken it. And so if they... Excuse me, if the previous few days hadn't been heartbreaking enough for Jesus' friends, now he was missing, his body was missing, and they couldn't give him a proper send-off. And then the third surprising thing that happened is two angels suddenly appear. We're told two figures in dazzling apparel. Now, Luke doesn't call them angels, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that they were angels because the women fell down in fear at the sight of these two dazzling figures. And then the angels ask what really is a very strange question. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Now, put yourself in the women's shoes for a moment and think about what your answer would have been. Why are you seeking the living amongst the dead? Their answer probably would have gone like this. We're looking for Jesus who died and he was laid here and we saw it with our own eyes. We saw him die and we saw him laid here. He's dead. We're not looking for the living among the dead. We're looking for the dead among the dead. He's dead. We saw it with our own eyes. But then the angels give the only interpretation that makes sense of all of the pieces of evidence that are there, the the heavy stone rolled away, the nobody in the tomb and the angels appearing. And they say this in verse 6. He is not here. He has risen. And it's all in the present tense. They don't speak of Jesus in the past tense. He is not here. He has risen. And those words that the angels spoke to those women made sense of the crisis that they faced right then. And those words are powerful enough to wipe away all loss and all grief, and all tears, and change everything. The women went from being perplexed because they thought that Jesus was dead, but the only thing that was dead was their understanding. They were wrong. They were completely and utterly and wonderfully wrong because Jesus was not dead. He was alive. And right then, in that moment, Those women being wrong is the best news ever. 
Now think about how this fits with other great stories. Lots of great stories have that kind of revelation at some point in the story, don't they, that makes you rethink everything that you thought was true before. So who remembers watching Star Wars and then discovering that actually Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father? Well, that changes everything. Or who remembers watching the Bruce Willis film, The Sixth Sense? Anybody remember that one? And you watch that, and then you, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you. Um, but you, in, in the, you watch this entire film all the way through, and it's only at the end that you realize that Bruce Willis's character is dead all the way through. And then you go back and you watch it, and you realize, wow, that piece of inside information changes everything about the way that you watch the film. So it is with the resurrection. So it is with the resurrection. It changes everything. You see the risen Christ and it changes everything. Death that looks final and ultimate and undefeatable is actually conquered. The truth that all mankind face is that death is real. But it doesn't have to be the end. Jesus here helps us to redefine and rethink death so that we no longer have to be perplexed. Here in this story and in Easter, death actually can lead to life. Weakness and suffering give way to glory. Crushed dreams can rise from, from the ashes of crushed dreams can rise living hope. Jesus is alive and he redefines what death is. It is no longer the end. It's merely the, pot the potential for humans, for, for those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the end of the beginning and the beginning of eternity. So the women were perplexed, but they shouldn't need to have been because it was predicted that what they were encountering on that first Easter morning was predicted, it was prophesied, it was promised. Now, it's hard to imagine to be in the, in the women's shoes and to think about what it must have been like to have discovered an empty tomb on that morning. But although it was dark outside, the angels basically say to these women, your understanding should not be darkened because Jesus has told you everything that was going to happen. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 again. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. Remember how he told you. Jesus, all the way through the Gospel of Luke, had repeatedly spelled out, he would have to die, but he would rise again. Let me just give you a couple of examples that come up on the screen. Luke 9, verse 22. Jesus' words. The Son of Man, speaking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Then Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. And taking the 12 disciples, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
Now the women had followed Jesus to Jerusalem and they had seen him rejected by the angry religious elites. They had watched him as he had been handed over to the Roman governors, uh, the Roman governor by one of his own friends. He was betrayed by Judas and they heard him receive a death sentence and then they watched in anguish as he was mocked and spit upon and they watched in anguish as, the, as every lash of the whip scourged flesh from Jesus' back and then they had seen nails driven through his hands and his feet as he was lifted up on a cross and they had seen blood pour from his wounds and his life drain away. And then they had watched him being laid into a tomb but all of those events had meant that they had forgotten what was still to happen. That on the third day he would rise. But corrected by the angels, the penny drops and, they, uh, and the lights go on and they remember the words of Jesus, verse 8, and then they ran from the tomb to tell everybody the good news that Jesus was alive. Now they get to the men and what's the men's reaction? Oh, that's nonsense. You women are crazy. Except for Peter and, and John, we're told in John's gospel, they run to the tomb they see for themselves. And we're told here at the end of verse 12 that Peter just goes away marveling. Not believing, but marveling. Wow, I, this is unexpected. They were telling the truth. Jesus' words here in Luke 9 and Luke 18 had come true. But the women had forgotten. They'd forgotten. And quite honestly, if you're like me, we can sit here and we can be judgy of the women. Man, I can't believe that just like Jesus said that four days before he died, Luke 18. It's probably like, or at least a week. It was only a week before he died that he had said, I'm going to rise from the dead. Why were they not expecting it? But the reality is there are things that happen in our life that make us like the women. Things that strike us things that come against us, things that distract us from the world, or we experience loss and pain and difficulties that, help, that make us forget God's word, that make us forget his promises. We go through seasons of life or situations that we face and we feel like God's plan has gone sideways on us and we don't, can't make sense of it. And any kind of talk about hope seems like nonsense to us. And we forget God's words. Just as the pain of the crucifixion caused these women to forget what had been predicted, we can forget what has been promised. And the angels would remind us this morning, remember how he told you that he must rise from the dead after being crucified. Remember his promises. Remember his word to you. Remember that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him before it happened. And it wasn't a lucky guess. It was his perfect plan predicted right throughout the entire Bible. And so the things that we face in our life that can leave us perplexed, they're no surprise to God. His promises remain true to us. That he will rise from the dead, and he has, and that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he won't. Jesus is risen from the dead just as he said he would, and he's coming again just as he said he would. 
And if he can keep his promise to rise from the dead, we can be sure he'll keep his promise to come again and make an end of sin and death and make all things new. Jesus is the kind of redeemer that we can trust because he knows the end from the beginning and he's in control of all things, even those things that we can't control ourselves, like death. And he's always working according to his plan. And Easter Sunday is the loudest declaration in all of history that God is on his throne and that his plan is not going to fail and that he is going to do all that he said he would do. And he will ultimately be victorious. And then there's the third P, which is that the story is very personal. Do you see all the names in there? So Luke wants us to see that these are real women with real names and real lives. Joanna, two Marys, a whole bunch of other women that are unnamed at the end of verse 10. And then we meet Peter. And if you read Matthew and Mark and John, you find that there's other names and other faces But they all have different responses to what goes on. They all have different ideas. So the women believed and they went and they told other people about Jesus rising from the dead. Some of the men doubted it and called it nonsense. Some of the other men got up off their backsides and ran to the tomb and checked it out for themselves. And what Luke wants us to see in naming names and pointing to faces and people and their different responses to Jesus and his resurrection is that we all are faced with what we will do with the story of Jesus' resurrection. How will we respond to what Jesus has done? It's personal. It's a personal response. Now in verses 11 and 12, Peter starts in doubt but Eventually, he he reaches a rock-solid conviction that this is the truth. Listen to the words of Peter just about two or three months after the events that we just read in Luke 24. This is from Acts chapter 4. Peter is standing before the same religious leaders that killed Jesus, and here's what he says. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name by which you can be saved other than the name of Jesus. It's personal. It's personal for us and it's personal for him. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey on that first Palm Sunday, the, the crowds cheered his name and they shouted Hosanna because there was this rising expectation that he was about to bring God's judgment against their enemies. That he was about to raise, raise up an army and overthrow their evil oppressors. And they, the Jews were longing for that. They were waiting for God's king to establish his kingdom. And if he got a bit of Roman blood on his clothes, oh, that's all the better. But because they were waiting for a redemption that wasn't what Jesus had planned, they missed the very redemption that was happening right under their nose. For instead of spilling Roman blood on the streets of Jerusalem, he let his own blood be spilt from a cross on a hill outside the city. And in so doing, he saved us 
from the greatest enemy that humans will ever face. And it wasn't the Romans. And it wasn't Darth Vader. And it wasn't aliens from out of space. It was from the enemy within. Sin that leads to death because the wages of sin is death. What you earn from sinning is death. And sin is this invisible power that dwells within each of us, that holds us captive and makes us sin, do things that are against God's law. And whilst sin has no enemies, uh, sorry, no armies and no prisons, it holds each and every single human being captive. It traps us in a downward spiral of doing wrong and earning and heaping upon ourselves more and more of God's judgment. And none of us can get away from it. Except, as Peter says, there is a name by which we can be saved. The name of Jesus. One who would die in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. And Easter is all about his saving work on our behalf. On Good Friday, all of Jesus' enemies took their best shot at him. And they thought that they had won because he lay dead in a tomb. But Jesus was not defeated. He rose again. And in so doing, he defeated those enemies of sin and death and Satan. And he promises to save all who will bow the knee in faith and trust him as their personal saviour. And there's no other saviour like Jesus. All of the other things that we could put our hopes in, the countless religions that we could follow, or the secular saviours of our careers, or our bank accounts, or our families, all that promise hope and life and meaning and satisfaction come up empty. Only the indestructible risen Jesus gives us the salvation that we need. And it's not found in his teaching, and it's not found in his philosophy, and it's not found in his example. It's found in him personally, as Lord and Savior. A dead person can't save anybody because they're dead, but a risen Savior can save all who trust in him. And the good news of Easter, and the good news of the gospel, and the good news of what we read in Luke 24, is that Jesus is alive right now, ruling and reigning from heaven, promising to all who will turn from their sins and trust in him that we can experience forgiveness of sin and new life and eternal life with him. He's not in the tomb. He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story that though we are dead in our sins and under your judgment, there is one who can save us, who laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins and took it up again on that first Easter Sunday and now shares it with all who will trust in him. Thank you that we can experience true life with Jesus because of 
Easter. We pray that we would go away amazed and in awe and with great gratitude for Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. We ask these things in his name. Amen.